For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. The unsurpassed, profound, and wondrous Dharma is rarely met with, even in a hundred thousand million kalpas. Now I can see and hear it, accept and maintain it. May I unfold the meaning of the Tathagata's truth. Welcome, everyone. For newcomers, I'm Taigen Leighton, the guiding Dharma teacher at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate. Can you hear me okay? Good. So I'm very happy to have with us as the guest speaker today, Sarah Valentine. Hi, Sarah. Um, so Sarah, some of you will remember, Sarah was a regular uh, participant at Ancient Dragon Zen Gate. Uh, some years ago when she was teaching at Northwestern. Uh, among other things, Sarah is a, uh, a scholar of Russian literature, uh, has uh, translated uh, some of the poetry of Gennady Ayagi, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, and uh, also written commentaries on his work. Uh, but um, today we're going to hear about another book she's written, called When I Was White, a memoir. So, um, Sarah uh, was, uh, uh, grew up in a uh, middle-class white suburb of Pittsburgh, where I also grew up. I'm not sure if our, our um, song, a member from uh, Pittsburgh is here. Deborah was here earlier. Anyway, um, so uh, Sarah has a very uh, interesting, unusual, and deeply informative story uh, that she tells in this book, a powerful book. Um, and also I want to welcome uh, Sarah's brother, Ken Mio, who's a priest at Great Val Monastery. Please give my very warm regards to Chosen and Hogitz and uh, and. Um, Oh, now I'm forgetting Chosen's uh, Hogan. Yes, of course. Uh, so uh, Hogan, Great Val Monastery is a wonderful place. So I'm glad you could join us. Um, so uh, I want to say a little bit about um, the irrelevance of what Sarah has to share with us and of her book. So uh, our the founder of our lineage in Japan said to study the way is to study the self. And so we all have identities. We all have selves that we, um, you know, that are, are malleable, but we have a kind of sense of some self. And um, Sarah had the experience of growing up in a, uh, a white suburban family and then learning at age 27 that she had a black father. So uh, her book is an exploration into identity and self and how self is constructed and how identity 
forms and how and and then the process of transforming identity so it's very relevant to our buddhist practice in that way uh, it's also relevant uh especially these days so uh at ancient dragon's end gate um after george floyd was murdered we started having a friday morning after friday morning zazen uh discussion group on racism and anti-racism that uh Dylan leads, he's here, and I uh, recommend that. Sazen is at 8 and 8.30. We have uh, really wonderful, just really illuminating discussions about the issue of race, and it affects all of us. Um, and then even more so uh, now, since the terrible white supremacist terrorist assault on our capital, January 6th, so we all need to be looking at and talking about and uh, becoming aware of all of the issues of our country's, uh, I guess, 400-year-old history of white supremacy. So what Sarah went through is, a, is really informative. So I'll just mention that we also, uh, we will have in the next couple of months, uh, three other black women speakers. Uh, so check our schedule. And I'm really happy that you're here, Sarah. Thank you so much for your book, for being here today. So you're on. <laughs> Thank you so much, Tigan. This is so, um, this is a great experience to come back to Ancient Dragon Zen Gate. I was here around 2016 and I see uh, a lot of familiar faces. So it's a nice homecoming for me in some way. And it's also great to see, I think, some friends from uh, Great Vow are here today, in, in addition to my brother. So uh, hello to all of you too. I will uh, give some more details about my experience growing up and, you know, what I talk about in the memoir, and then also discuss what that transformation that I went through kind of consisted of in terms of how I had to process, you know, both the identity that I had grown up with, um, which was, which was very, very much white and, uh, you know, in my family in myself and in my culture and uh, what it meant to discover I was biracial and African-American because that was a, uh, you know, the, the uh, identity, the ethnic identity that was most othered, you know, where, where I grew up. And I think that may be the case for, you know, many um, white communities. And then we'll talk about a little bit about, um, you know, the, the broader ramifications and significance of, you know, this journey and the, and the work that you're all doing too. Um, and then we'll have some time uh, for discussion. That's something that I want to make sure I do leave time for because that's, um, you know, I want to hear what, what everyone else has to say and be able to respond to that too. So I will, I have the book here and I know maybe a couple of, of you have read it, not, not compulsory, um, but this is, this is the book. This is the front cover when I was white and this is the back cover. And this is just a little, to give you an idea of of where we're starting <laughs> this conversation from. This is um, me and my two younger brothers. I'm probably about eight, eight years old, maybe, in this photo. 
And so as Tigan mentioned, I grew up in a um, white, uh, predominantly Catholic, uh, small community outside of Pittsburgh, suburban middle class. And our family was very active in the church community, in the school community. And, you know, I would say uh, we, the Dunn family, were generally well-known and well-liked. But um, And we moved there when I, I believe I was in kindergarten. So I grew up there for um, most of my childhood and, and teenage life. But I realized that I started, you know, pretty early on to have experiences that no one else in my family did. I um, people would ask me, and this is kids and adults, uh, where I was from. Uh, they would ask, "What? What are you?" You know that that question, and what is your nationality? That I guess meant, you know, "What is your ethnicity?" And I would always respond that I was Irish and Italian because that's what my parents were. That's you know, uh, what my grandparents were, my brothers, there was no reason. Uh, my parents never um, gave me a reason to think otherwise. I knew very well the story of, you know, my my um, birth story, my mother and my father going to the hospital and bringing me home, and we had all the photos. So there was really no um, no way for me to doubt, especially very early on, that I, you know, belonged to my family in the same way that my brothers and everyone else in our extended family did. Um, but as I grew up, those experiences kept happening, especially um, when I was in high school. My, you know, friends would make uh, comments about my hair that, um, and, you know, our school district was was very white, um, that uh, the racial demographic of our school would change based on how I wore my hair. Um, and these are the kind of jokes that I laughed along with them. You know, I didn't feel that they were offensive to me in any way because I had never really seen myself as, as different from my family. Although I did know in some ways that, that people saw me as different, I could never quite get to the point of articulating that in terms of race because there was no language for it where we grew up. Um, the topic of race, if it came up in the news, it was usually, um, it had something to do with uh, violence or something in the inner city, you know, as they say. Uh, and it was not considered a topic for polite discussion. And, and maybe some of you, maybe that sounds familiar to some of you if you grew up in the same kind of uh, community uh, race um, was just not something that was talked about. It, you know, it seemed to apply to other people in faraway places, you know, not to us. And so that was, there was, there was just no language. There was no way for me or anyone else in our family. Of course, they, um, they, they very much did not want to, as I, as I learned later, um, address that topic at all, um, let alone in regards to me and how that might impact our family. So for a, just a very long time, it was not, uh, that was not a concept that I could uh, admit or, you know, that came to my, you know, to my conscious level, even as I recognized I was having all these experiences where people were essentially saying, you know, you're black, you look 
different? Are you Indian? Are you something? Right? There were um, there there were a lot of questions and a lot of guesses about uh, what my background was. And at some point, and this was when I was in high school, someone even asked me, "Where is your accent from?" And this I had grown up in that place my my whole life. I did not have an accent that was different than anyone else's, but the, no, no, where where's your accent from? And so it was just one of these seemingly bizarre incidents that um, showed that people uh, in in some way, culturally, uh, racially, or ethnically saw me as other. And uh, as I was preparing to go to college, our family was very, um, they very much promoted education. You know, we all played sports growing up. We had extracurricular activities. And um, the idea was to, you know, become a very competitive uh, candidate for a good school, you know, as my parents hoped, an Ivy League school. And I remember in high school when it was time to uh, do those applications, I met with my guidance counselor and he said, you know, you're a very good student. You have you know, top grades. There are um, minority scholarships that you should uh, take advantage of, that you should apply for that will, you know, uh, help you um, get into some of these institutions. And right away I said, oh no, I don't apply, I don't um, qualify for those. And, um, you know, who knows what he thought at that point, he just kind of dropped the subject and we moved on. But I remember that day in particular, because my father picked me up from you know, probably basketball practice afterwards. And I mentioned it to him. I said, you know, my guidance counselor, asked if, you know, he recommended I should apply for minority scholarships. And and do you think that's a good idea? And right away, he said, no, that would be dishonest, because, you know, you would, because essentially, you don't qualify, you know, you are um, not a minority. And so that was, I think, maybe the the one time I can remember um, my parents kind of addressing directly the question of of whether or not I was you know ethnically ethnically different, and it was a hard no. Like that was their um, that was their uh, standpoint, and they were sticking to it. But as I went to college and I went to Carnegie Mellon, which is also in Pittsburgh, the further I got from my home community, um, where people knew me and my family, and just kind of accepted us. Uh, you know, aside from those, you know, questions and um, experiences I had, no one really pushed the issue. As I said, I, I played basketball. Um, my guidance counselor, you know, didn't insist. Uh, I remember going to a doctor and uh, the doctor assuming that I had gone there with my mother and assuming that my father was black. And again, oh no, that's, that's not the case. Uh, but as I went to college and realized that, um, People, my peers were interacting with me as, you know, under the assumption that I was um, a minority African-American mixed race. I started to realize that this, this is something personally that I needed to address. At that time, I still didn't really have the language to, to articulate what, what exactly 
um, this meant for me. I remember on my college application, uh, I selected other for race. And it felt like, again, that was just the small, smallest step to me kind of recognizing that you know, everything that my family has told me up until this time, we're a very close family. Um, my parents were always very loving and supportive. That something was not right, that they were not telling me the whole story. Um, but again, it was such, such a difficult and um, you know, huge subject in terms of what it would mean if I did dig deeper into it, that at that time, even though I had questions, I put it out of my mind. And I went to graduate school uh, to get my doctorate in Russian literature, as Tygen mentioned. And that I, at Princeton, so I was even further away from my home community and the people that you know I had known. And at that point, I encountered a, a black professor, and it was the first time I had had a black professor or teacher in my whole um, you know academic life. You can imagine how, you know, what that, what that says. Um, but at that point, I realized that this, this professor, the same thing happened. Um, I was, he was a creative writing teacher and I went to ask him about, uh, creative writing opportunities, you know, outside of school he said, well, there are some, uh, workshops for African-American writers and, you know, you should apply to them. And at that point, I think because for the first time I was faced with a Black person, I should say that most of the time um, before it was white people I was interacting with who were asking me about my background. And so it was easy for that subject to drop. But this time there was something about this interaction that felt different. I felt like okay, if this, if, if this is coming from this professor, from this individual who is African-American, this is, I cannot ignore this, right? This is um, something that is not a fluke. It's uh, not a mistake or a misapprehension. And at that point, and this is when I was 27, I decided that I needed to discuss this with my mother and that was something that, again, had, had been in the back of my mind, but it was a confrontation I was so afraid to have that um, I just, I put it off for as long as possible. Uh, the reason that I decided that now was the time was that I had one more year left in graduate school. And again, it was going to be time to apply for things, for jobs. Uh, and I knew I was going to be out in the world and I had to figure this out once and for all. Uh, am I or am I not? You know, what, what is the deal? I didn't feel like I could go forward uh, further into my you know, independent life outside of school, which, you know, in some ways is a, it's a, it's a little bit of a bubble without knowing this about myself. And so I did contact her. I emailed her, um, you know, kind of the most d distant <laughs> way possible. And I didn't hear from her for about a week. And finally, she called and we had a very difficult conversation. And she implied that in college, she was sexually assaulted by someone uh, she did not know, maybe another student or not. And that, yes, he was African-American. 
and that this person was my biological father. And that was a lot. That was a lot to take in. Uh, During that conversation, she wanted to reinforce that that didn't change anything. It didn't mean anything. That was one of the things she insisted on, that this was true, but it didn't mean anything. And for me, that simply wasn't the case. It meant everything. Uh, And at that point, I had to start pretty much from the ground up. I had to deal with the the emotional weight of the denial that uh, I had, that me and my whole family had been in for most of my life. I had to deal with feelings of betrayal, especially from my parents who um, just felt that this was uh, an issue they did not either think was important enough or did not want to talk about. And I had to come to terms with the fact that as someone who had grown up identifying as white, I had internalized a lot of anti-Black racism uh, along with everyone else, or not everyone, but along with the general sentiments of my community. These were things that were um, not necessarily directly discussed, but indirectly in a way. Um, The belief that people who were Black and other ethnicities too were somehow less than or marginalized or different in a way that was was somehow valid and that we and our culture was the center and everyone else was kind of on, on the sidelines. Um, that was an attitude that I realized was, um, was something I had internalized. And then the fact I had to deal with that, that now applied to me, that I had um, buried all of these uh, feelings uh, of exclusion and of racism, you know, again, maybe even in the form of microaggressions that had been directed toward me, um, that all of those, you know, questions and comments that uh, had followed me throughout my life had not been innocent necessarily, that there was a real emotional weight to that. Um, There were judgments there and I had never known how to deal with them. So it was as if I had opened a Pandora's box and just, you know, 27 years of uh, emotional, I, I don't know, aftermath came out and it was really difficult to deal with. Um, in the book, I discuss um, toward the end, I found some psychological models and they had to deal with how white children are socialized, how they um, develop their identities in the world uh, and you know through through the years growing up, how biracial um, children do and how black children do. And each of those sets of um, steps that each you know different ethnic category went through, they all applied, to me, um, I had learned and internalized the white socialization, but uh, I also recognized now as an adult, I was very rapidly and very chaotically going through all of these other stages um, that usually develop uh, over the course of a person's life, right? Um, and they all, I had to deal with them all at that moment. Uh, what does it mean to be mixed race, right? Because that's 
you know, um, race is such a binary in in our society that you know being in between that's that's a whole other thing, right? That's that's a whole other um, you know set of questions to deal with. And ultimately, what did it mean to um, recognize myself as an African American who had internalized a lot of self hatred without even realizing it? What did it mean that my biological father, whom I didn't know and whose idea um, whose identity my mother either didn't know or didn't want to disclose. Uh, what did, you know, what did that mean? What did it mean that my, the father I had grown up with and who I was very close to was not my biological father? And so all of these, you know, very, very profound, really, um, questions about the self, right? And, and who I was at a very basic level, um, as an individual, uh, in my family, in my community, racially, in society, it all kind of exploded at once. And it was very much too much to handle. I suffered from depression um, very severely. At some point, I became suicidal. Uh, it was just, um, it was so difficult to process. And so I will, you know, I went on a very long uh, and you know, I probably unhealthy search for my biological father, trying to find out who he was. Um, I was never successful in that. Uh, and that process probably lasted almost 10 years. I mean, this was a very long process uh, of, you know, kind of really, you know, shattering my sense of identity and then struggling to put it back together somehow. And, uh, now I will talk a little bit about what what um, what I learned, you know, how I came out on the other side of this, you know, very very difficult and very um, kind of crushing process. And of course, I will have to say that these are it's not as if you know I learned the lessons and now it's happily ever after, right? Of course, these are ongoing questions and. Um, things to deal with. But the, the most, um, I can say maybe the most positive or the most productive thing that I learned about, now this gets into the question of, of race and the self and identity, was that um, I had multiple identities that had to coexist, even though it felt like they were in conflict. And that even though I felt very fragmented in terms of my knowledge about myself, about my family, about even what it meant to be African-American. I didn't grow up in a Black or a mixed family. I didn't have those cultural references, which are so important to one's sense of self when it comes to uh, our ethnicity and the people in the communities with whom we identify, right? I didn't have all of that. So you know, what does that mean to be a person of color who was raised in kind of a white bubble? Um, and I realized that I had to, if I tried to conform to someone else's um, view or understanding of what it meant to be any of these identities, I would ultimately fail because as a person, I fit none of those. At the same time, I had my own experience, which was valid. And I had to hold all of that, realizing that even if, you know, black and white seem to be 
opposing, even if uh, emotional experiences of shame and of anger and betrayal are there, that I also felt a lot of acceptance, a lot of um, compassion uh, for for myself and for others. This was a process that actually helped me um, see see the world and see others differently too. And that was that was a very eye opening experience. And so I will say about you know the the takeaway from this is I think that you know whatever kind of work we're doing with anti racism, um, it brings up a lot of emotions. You know, you don't have to learn that you have, that you have a, a surprise biological father right and that you are a different ethnicity to to go through a process of um self-interrogation uh in regards to race and how you um come to that you know uh, on your own and to the world and so i would say that this this is also work that's never done but it's become easier for me to to hold all of these fragmented parts and realize that, you know, that may be, that may be the kind of whole that all of us are um, striving to achieve and that, you know, it's an ongoing project, but it is possible. So I'll stop there and we can, you know, maybe uh, turn to discussion or questions. So thank you uh, so much, Sarah. Um, So it's a profound uh, situation that she went through. And of course, yes, all of us need to look at this question. Um, so uh, I'm sure there are questions, comments, responses. Uh, David Ray, maybe you'll help me you, uh, uh, call on people. If you ha- have a comment or response, please, you can physically raise your hand. Uh, we can't see all of you. So you can also go to the participant window on which you can click on in the bottom and there's a place where you can raise your hand uh, at the bottom of that. So we'll take uh, comments, questions, responses. Uh, uh, please feel free and, and thank you so much, Sarah, for being open to this discussion, this profound discussion. Um, so uh, Eve uh, Pinsker, would you uh, start us off? You know, hi, Sarah. Thank you very much for sharing your story and for writing your book, too. Um, and it was really interesting for me listening to you because um, there's some point of similarities with my own story as well as some differences. So um, I, I don't have the, the fatherhood piece and the, the revelation Um, But I I grew up in Pittsburgh, too, a generation before you. I graduated high school in 75. um, And I grew up in Point Breeze, um, in North Point Breeze, which was and is one of the few integrated neighborhoods in Pittsburgh. And then I I went to high school in Mount Lebanon um, and sort of had that experience. I went and actually uh, Tigan went to Alderdice. and I went there too briefly and then switched to Mount Lebanon and, and had the experience of being othered more there, you know, than I was in the city, which was more mixed, a lot more mixed. Um, but, and then I've lived in different places and I've lived in, in Pittsburgh and in Hawaii and in Micronesia where I did my dissertation field work and in Chicago. 
and and people have assumed different things about me depending on where I am. And that's one of the things that I've learned. And and there's things about Pittsburgh that are, I think, unique to Pittsburgh. Um, I think, you know, the black-white split is stronger in Pittsburgh. Um, there's not as many, like Chicago, we've got more. And, and, and I've had the experience in Chicago of people coming up on this, to, the, to me on the street and then literally saying, what are you anyway? Because they can't talk to me unless they figure out what I am and they look at me and they don't know. But, but a lot of times in Chicago, people assume I'm um, Latina and that never happened in Pittsburgh. And one of the things that I found out about Pittsburgh that I didn't know is that um, Latinos were actually brought in as strike breakers for the homestead strike in the late um, 19th century. And, you know, in Chicago at around the same time, people came, um, Mexican-Americans came to Chicago to work in the mills and they did establish their own um, communities. Our Lady of Guadalupe Church on the southeast side of Chicago is the oldest um, Latinx church in Chicago. And in Pittsburgh, one of the reasons that didn't happen is because people didn't want to be known, known as strike breakers and they assimilated in. And that's been one of the difficult things about the whole, you know, African-American history in the U.S. is that the whole sort of one drop of black blood makes you black thing. Um, and that it's been harder. But, you know, as your own experience shows, it, you know, depends like both on what you look like and what people assume that means and where you are. And 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 so the whole thing is, um, you know, it's not that simple, not that straightforward. And and. Um, you know, like I said, one of the things about about Pittsburgh was that that um, you know, like I said, that the Latino history to me is interesting because um, people did assimilate in, and so then when I grew up, you know, the categories were like white and black, and when I was lived in Point Breeze, I was clearly white. When I've been other places, it hasn't been as clear. So, thank you, Eve. Uh, I don't know if. Sarah has any comments on any of that? Thank you so much for sharing your experience. I will just echo that um, what you said about um, being uh, people assuming you are different things based on where you are. That is also very important. Um, In college, I was part of a a more multiracial group. Uh, I lived in Los Angeles um, after I graduated from um, graduate school. That was you know, that's such a multiracial and multicultural city that it was the first time that no one really cared, you know, or, or asked what I was. And then in Chicago, uh, I realized, you know, I had friends in, in Evanston and, but then I had my friends on the South side and the West side, and those were very different groups. So there also was a sense of, um, even though it was a more diverse and more cosmopolitan city, as you said, Pittsburgh is, it just has its own thing. Um, yeah, it was still very segregated, and I fit into those communities in different ways. But yeah, I will echo that what you said was very much part of my experience too. Yeah, and like it's the thing about Chicago is sometimes they can't talk to you unless they pigeonhole you first. Yeah, thank you, Eve. Uh, other people, uh, comments, questions. David Ray. Thank you. Thanks, Tygen. I can't raise my hand on the participants no. thing. Sarah, thank you so much for your talk. Um, you know, I was going to tell you about my story and about how my experience around sexuality resembles what I heard you say, but I think I'm going to I'm going to leave that off and just just because uh, because I'm kind of want to 
preserve the, the uniqueness of, of your story and realize that, oh, wow, that, that's, it, it, it's not the same. So here's a question uh, that, that, that I have, and that is, um, how has Buddhist thought and, and Buddhist practice um, helped you, if, if it has, in your, in, your, in your path, both thinking and, and, and living through questions around self and identity? Uh, Thank you. And I also want to say that one of the things that has happened as I've shared my stories that has been the most, I think, just the richest experience is that people tell me they share their stories, uh, just as Eve did and just as you have done a a little bit. And um, one of the things that this story seems to resonate with is is, uh, people's experience around sexuality. In fact, in graduate school, my friends, again, who, who were all white, as I was going through this, they, they were the ones helping me. And I had a black coming out party because there was no other, again, there was no other way to, to talk about having that transformation as an adult and kind of recognizing publicly, um, you know, who you have always been, but maybe for one reason or another, we're, we're not able to state. So that um, that is something that resonates. So they're related, but I also you know, very, very much discussions that, um, you know, need to be approached on their own. But I would say that in terms of uh, Buddhism, it was a way to, uh, on the one hand, just, just center myself and quiet, you know, to the extent that I could, because I I couldn't entirely, um, all of the pain and just be able to sit with and hold all of these kind of conflicting, swirling um, feelings. Uh, it was a space to confront them uh, gently, which was very important because this, in many ways, this was a very violent process of kind of tearing the self apart or having it being torn apart, then having to kind of perforce, you know, piece it back together. And so, um, you know, uh, sitting gave me a way to, uh, you know, slow down that process. And really, in in the way that, you know, we talk about, you know, self and other that those, um, that those binaries at, at a very deep level don't really exist, right? Everything is interconnected. Um, We're individual, but we are also interdependent. And so that gave me a, a great language and a great perspective to um, see my experience not not just as my own personal journey, but part of this larger journey that we're all going through in different ways. And that race is part of it. You know, I, I often hear, well, you, you know, you should just think of yourself as part of the universal human race. You know, race only divides us. And well, it doesn't. Right. Right. I see like shaking heads. Why can't you be both? I mean, you, you, an individual who accepts a, a racial or a gender or a sexuality experience, and you're going to have um, Zenju uh, Earthland Manuel come, right, as one of your speakers. And I love her book, The Way of Tenderness, because she talks about these different aspects of identity uh, as gates, right, that as, as um, problematic as they can be, they are uh, gates that we can walk through and that can help us in this um in this journey to greater awareness. So, uh, you know, it, this, this practice was something that helped me see that there is no separation between um, our particular personal identities and this larger awareness that we are, um, you know, working towards. 
Thank you, Sarah. Thank you very much. Yeah, on some level, uh, in a less dramatic, striking way, perhaps, prolonged zazen practice uh, does something similar where we have to, we see ourselves in our own greed, hate, and delusion, and so forth, and uh, our identity gets, uh, in some ways, disrupted, at least, and we have to put it back together again in some ways, uh, sometimes more or less dramatically. But uh, your your story is a kind of parable about Zen practice in a certain way, uh, but also, you know, the issue of race is so important. There are a number of people now. Uh, uh, Deborah uh, from Pittsburgh is first, and then we have Dylan and Nation. So, Deborah, go ahead. So, hi, hi. So, I'm so glad you're here today. My question may seem awkward, but it comes from a very sincere place. Um, I've been trying to uh, interact with black people more uh, personally lately. And I, because of the Black Lives Matter movement, there's such an awareness of race. And I wanted to ask you personally, if someone is trying to relate to you, do you just want to be Sarah and not a racial person? And I was wondering if people... Like I made a mistake of kind of making a, a, a you know some comments about my connection to race to a person, and I, I think it was very awkward. And I, I know it's a personal reaction to each of each person, but I was curious for how you'd comment on my question. Is she there? Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. And I should also say, just consider this as an AMA. Ask me anything. You know, this is a very personal <laughs> story. I wrote a book about it, so. It's it's all fair game. Um, so so thank you for uh, for going in that direction. I, I will also say that as as important a topic as race is, and as important to our our, our identities as it is, race is usually the least interesting thing about a person, in the sense that you know once you get to know someone. As you said, you know they're they're Sarah. They're you know they like music. You know they're they have a great sense of humor, like all of these things about everyone. When it comes to friendship and making connections with people, um, th- those are usually the things that, you know, will will sustain a friendship. But I appreciate your, um, y- your desire to connect and also the awkwardness that that brings. I mean, it's, it's almost never not awkward. Uh, and I think in my own experience, because, you know, I, I think that you have to be willing to, to mess up mm-hmm. and to be able to, you know, get through that and also to be able to communicate in a way that that shows your good intentions, but also know when you need to draw back. And um, I think a lot of the work of anti-racism that I uh, you know, I, I propound is for uh, especially white people to um, do that work in, in their own communities. I think when we, when my family started having discussions of race, I mean, it was horrible. Uh, and there was so much resistance. And, you know, I lost friends over this, not necessarily because they uh, saw me as different, um, being a bad thing, but because our relationship just couldn't sustain that discussion. And so I think that there, um, in some ways, it really helps to have a context in which, you know, people are coming together 
with the with the openness and understanding hey we're going to have these messy conversations we want to connect with one another it's uh it's much more difficult to do that in the wild so to speak which is you know just in in daily life in our social life in in work environments to you know go up to someone and broach that subject because it, it's usually you know um people of color in in this society and it's something that i feel very much we have to be very much on guard because there is so because um you know our daily experience society takes or wants to take so much um from us uh, so much so much humanity so much agency and so it is really difficult um and often undesirable to be open to someone who is going on their own journey. And this is not to say this is what you are doing, but who wants uh, you to be part of that in some way. Um, and so, again, I, w- I would say that, you know, there are groups, there are forums where people from different backgrounds want to talk about and, and connect on this level. And I would say the, the best way to, to do that is to find that kind of group. Um, where you can, you know, where you can come at these things together. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's very helpful. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, uh, Dylan is next. Hey, Sarah. It's so good to see you. Um, uh, Just, I'm really thankful for our friendship. Um, uh, And I think after reading the book, I, uh, I think my question for you is like, uh, I'm really interested in how, when the decision came for you to write a book uh, about this, because it's so tender and it's so visceral, you know, and, and painful. Like, so like, it's just a very brave decision, I think, reading this book to, to write this book and, and to be, um, to be uh, that upfront and vulnerable and uh, compassionate to so many of the folks in the book, you know, like there's, uh, there's, there's lots of, uh, I saw lots of opportunities in the book for there to be a lot of grudges. And, and uh, I never really uh, found spots where there was grudges held when, in, at least in the, in the, in the way that the book came across. So that was very profound for me. Um, so I wanted to just ask you, like, when when did the moment come where you decided that this was a book you wanted to write? And in the process of writing, the creativity of it, how was that experience? Was it joyful, painful, cathartic, probably a mixture of all of them? I, I don't know. Yeah, thank you, Dylan. It's great. It's great to see you, too. Um, I remember we had a lot of great conversations around these subjects and kind of starting to get a little group together. Uh, in in ancient dragon, which was um, really fun, but I will say uh, that that's a really good question. And I decided to write the book a few years after I had been struggling with this, because as a, a scholar, as as someone who you know comes to things from uh, an intellectual and creative point of view, I realized that I could not process this without. Um, putting my feelings and experiences on paper and try to make some kind of order out of the, you know, the very um, destructive chaos that I was feeling. And so that project emerged um, kind of organically. I didn't necessarily have a memoir uh, in mind at first, but I just knew that these were things I had to, to write down and sort out. And um, 
There are plenty of grudges, <laughs> trust me. Um, but one of the things about uh, writing a book and uh, on a creative level, um, because even a memoir, it's it's truth, you know, to to, to the extent that one's memory allows. Um, but the people in the book, including yourself, are characters. And for characters in a book to be convincing, it means you have to see the story from their point of view. And that was something that had been so difficult for me personally in my personal life um, because, you know, my emotional struggle was front and center. Um, my mother was the person who, with whom I had the, the biggest and worst conflicts. But to write the book, I had to see things from her point of view at least on paper, uh, even if those struggles continued in real life. And so that was one of the things that helped me let go of some, you know, some of those grudges, uh, if not all of them. And it was, you know, emotionally, as you said, it was a mixture of all of those things. It was very re-traumatizing in some ways to write the, um, most difficult parts, but I realized that those were also the most important for me to write. And the more the book project took shape, the more I realized that um, the importance wasn't just for me to tell my story, but um, along the way, so many others uh, shared their stories with me. And I realized, especially for people who are mixed race, there was no real conversation around these issues. And so uh, the project also became something that could serve as a jumping off point for discussion for groups, maybe as we're doing here. And so that became part of the mission of writing the book. And writing it was, you know, I, I will not necessarily necessarily say it produced closure because um, th this process of self and even of writing, it's it's still it's something that's still very much open, but it did it did allow me to um, externalize the story. Now this is something that's shared with others. You know, it's not only my story, if that makes sense. Uh, and so that made it a little bit easier to approach. It kind of got it off my back and, you know, allowed me to open up to other things and other people just creatively in my life. So, so yeah, it, it, um, it, it did a lot of things to help me process the experience. Thank you very much, Sarah. Thank you, Dylan, for that great question. Um, uh, so much to say about all of this. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sarah. Uh, Asian, Nancy, uh, uh, you're up next. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for your really thoughtful and thought-provoking talk. It touched me on so many levels, and there are so many responses that I would love to share with you, but I will limit myself to one. And that is to just, um, you know, delve a little bit more into that phenomenon of awkwardness around having these conversations with our friends or people that we don't know very well around race. Um, as, a, as a professional psychotherapist, I'm called upon to, working in a, in a place where I work with a majority of people of color, I'm called upon to do this all the time. And um, it's, it's always, you know, it's not something that we can, um, 
you can't formulize it. There's no, there's no formula for how to do it. There's no strategy. And it's, it's, it's challenging and it's so vulnerable because in um, starting to address, you know, that there might be differences in experience between myself and the person that I'm talking to of a different race or ethnicity or color, um, I, I kind of find myself walking a tightrope between trying to help foster a sense that we can talk about this and that I can be trusted without overly, you know, othering the other person or overly assuring the other person, like, like getting into, you know, it's, it's like, you can't, you can't has go too far into otherness and you can't go too far into sameness. Very much the, um, phenomenon of Zen, you know, that, that, uh, you know, Dogen will say, well, you know, nose vertical, eyes horizontal, in some ways we are the same. And I think Zen has a tendency to maybe overemphasize that or, or people can. Um, and, and yet we are all different. And it's one thing for me to see and say it, but it's another to meet the person that I'm talking to you know, wherever they're coming from, um, whatever their experiences may have been with people who look like me. Um, so, so I just wanted to, you know, just acknowledge how, what a vulnerable situation that is and how, you know, one aspect of privilege is that we can arrange our lives so that we can avoid those conversations. And, and so anything you might want to um, just offer about that in, in response would be so wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Asian. It's great to see you too. Like I said, so many uh, familiar and friendly faces. Um, you're absolutely right uh, that this is, it's, just, it's so necessary, but it's so difficult and it's so awkward. And um, what you say about privilege is, is so important because, again, I had that experience too. Uh, if you come from a white community that's middle class or well off, you can effectively even for the, your whole life, if you want, um, distance yourself from uh, these, uh, you know, social issues, from other people's personal experience, losing nothing. And I think that is the, the thing that is so um, difficult about uh, having these conversations is the first place is that if, if people don't want to be made to feel uncomfortable, they technically don't have to, if white people are privileged people, whereas, you know, people who come from a more marginalized experience have no choice but to live um, in a state where, where they are dealing with these issues on a regular basis and dealing with these differences and dealing with being treated as different. And so that right there, and again, that's across socioeconomic, you know, spectrum, that difference um, in, in what you need to risk to be a part of the society is so vast. Um, and that's one of the things that when we do come together, um, makes it so difficult, because as you said, that, that, that becomes apparent. Uh, I would only say, and this this was something that was part of my experience too, that it becomes, uh, I think, more important to listen. Um, we want to say what our experience is, where we're coming from, and how much we want to make these connections and you know, want to not be the bad guy. And uh, I think sometimes that can, that is 
as good as that intention is, it can come off as very, um, you know, it, it can come off as alienating, uh, as, as you're saying, because it, in some ways you're, you're validating that difference and that different experience. Um, but if you come from a point of view of listening, that's the self stepping back a little bit and being able to, and I know it's a cliche at this point, but to hold space, uh, so to say, for, for others' experiences and to just signal maybe in that way, in, in a less... Um, in a less maybe active way. That's not exactly what I want to say. And I think maybe you know what I mean, that um, that you are someone who's who's willing to listen and even to step back. I think that's one of the things that we've heard a lot about and seen, uh, at least in the in the writer, the writing community, there has been more of a um, awareness that, hey, we need to publish more Black writers. You know, we need to put these voices forward and, um, you know, step back in, in our own, um, you know, or the majority experience needs to step back and make space for these other voices that have always existed, but that we never have necessarily recognized as um, important enough to center. So yeah, I, I appreciate your question. That's not really an answer, but, but that's what I have to say uh, about that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I, you know, I wanted to just, um, add on to that um it does seem like it is so it, it's essential to have the conversation for a real relation in order for a real relationship with another person to evolve and yet it's like you have to kind of respect how much of a relationship you have at, at that moment that there because there will be times um in any genuine relationship where we unintentionally are the aggressor for, so, for someone or, or we step on someone's toes or we, we hurt them by not understanding their experience in some way. And, um, and, I, and, I, and I'm with you around, you know, finding a way to let people know that you are someone who wants to listen and also to accept that there are things that we, you know, may not respond to and and that we sometimes do need to be educated about our own ignorance and our own and 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 awkwardness is i think we we try to shun awkwardness so much i i hear you know people talk about you know awkward but so so i'm always kind of trying to sort of help people feel like you know awkwardness is okay it is part of being real and and the more you know we can promote that as Zen practitioners, I think, I think the, the more the world has helped. So thank you so much. Thank you, Sarah and Asian. Cho uh, and Linda. Thank you from me also, Sarah, for writing this book and for being willing to have a forum with this much free and open discussion. That feels so important. As I'm listening to this, I'm, I'm wanting to share one experience I had with a friend. I, I'm in a place in my life where more people of color are in my world. And so the awkwardness of being in relationship with people who are very dear even and learning how to be. One of my friends one day said to me, and this is something that points to what was in my thinking, and I carry it, and I find it really helpful. She said to me one day, she said, Linda, I don't always want to be thought of as Black first. 
and it was really humbling and and it was also very eye opening for me and i I walk around a lot these days going, "What is my purpose right now with this person? Am I sincerely just here as a friend, or am I processing this through a lens that says, "Oh, this is one of my black friends, and I find it a very helpful because it points back to something I'm doing that seems to have a real effect. Um, I don't know if that maybe there's a question in there, but I mostly would to say thank you. And somehow that felt important to me. Thank you. Yes, that that's a, a very, you know, thank you for sharing that point of view. And when you are, you know, having those thoughts and making those realizations, you also may think about, well, do I say, you know, here's Taigen, my white Dharma teacher, you know, or not just you, but, but anyone, you know, we usually don't say, Hey, this is my, my white friend, so-and-so, especially if you are from a majority white community, I should say. Um, and, and even leaving that part out, you know, shows how subtly race and racial identity has been placed in in your mind and in our society's mind on others and that's and that's the othering and that's a big challenge um and that and that is personal work and it sounds like you're doing it so so keep on so thank you um i at the risk of being intrusive um we have this opportunity now and there are other hands up but kenyo uh uh as uh Sarah's brother, I just wondered if you might have any comments or responses or anything to add uh, about her story, uh, and also as a Zen priest, whatever, anything you want, might want to say. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, you know, really, I just have so much appreciation for um, Sarah's um, openness to learning from this experience. And, um, you know, I've, I've learned from it in my own way. Um, uh, but it really is, it really is a spiritual, a, a spiritually rich process that I've seen her going through and I feel like she's just navigated it with such um, broadness of heart and honesty and clarity. Um, perhaps I've learned more from just bearing witness to that than from, you know, anything, um, that I've independently um, realized. So thank you. Thank you, Kenya. I think Yokai's hand was up next and then and then Rona, I saw your hand up. Oh good, okay. So uh, I, I just wanna appreciate uh, this brother and sister. Uh, Joe Kai, your turn. Good morning, sir. Um, 
this is kind of a difficult question, but I've seen it come up in practice centers over and over. Is that is there something that needs to change in Western Buddhism to be more inclusive of people of color? And is there something that we're we're not doing that you think we could do to to help bring in people of color to our practice centers? That's a great question. Thank you very much. And I mean, when when I was an ancient dragon, that was a a discussion that that did come up. And I think in the larger um, Western diaspora Buddhist community too, uh, something that you know, people some people mentioned who are of um, Asian American and Japanese American descent have been that you know here are individuals who are predominantly white who you know adopt. Dharma names. And in this country, we have been, our families have been um, interned for that. We have, you know, not been able to, to keep or to, um, you know, stand behind or, or basically, you know, have, have our Japanese names with the um, ease that, that others do who are not necessarily from that culture. And so that brought up, you know, a whole slew of, um, you know, questions about what what this tradition is and how it can be more um, more uh, inclusive. Uh, something that um, Zenju wrote about in her book too, and I think she has a new book out now, is that in her uh, in her path in her journey to you know becoming a Dharma teacher, she realized that she had to become part of this community that was predominantly white. And I think in her case, male, and that, you know, there's a realization that we don't necessarily have that um, white culture has shaped um, what our Buddhist practice in this um, country has become. And so there are, you know, a a small but growing um, cadre, let's say of, of teachers of color, there's radical Dharma. That's a great um, book to read. And I think as long as the conversation keeps happening, you know, that's really the only way I think that these issues can be approached in um, a sustainable way. The the conversation, the the intention has to be sustained. It's not kind of, you know, one and done situation. Hey, we read the book, we had some, you know, talks and conferences, we're good, you know, and I don't think that is what anyone is doing, of course, but um, there is such a, um, there's, there's such a, uh, you know, desire to draw back from that um, discomfort and to say, which, you know, Zazen and and Buddhism, uh, you know, gives us a forum to say, hey, we we are all the same on this, you know, on this deeper level, Um, but in practice, there are so many barriers to that. So again, my only my only thoughts on that are that the conversation has to just keep continuing in real ways, right? Not just lip service. Um, and I and I think again, that's that's something that uh, the sangha is doing now. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, I'll just add that in addition to upcoming speakers by uh, from Black women, we have in April a Chinese uh, uh, woman uh, writer who is, who is uh, going to be talking about Asian American uh, Buddhists. And uh, so anyway, that's, uh, but that's also an important part of this discussion. And uh, uh, anyway, thank you, Sarah. 
Thank you, Joe Kai, for that question. Um, so who was, oh, Rona had a question. Rona's from Israel. Thank you, Sarah, so much. I'm sorry for the poor um, internet connection. I uh, hope you can hear my uh, question. Uh, yes. It's kind of a follow-up question to what you talked about with the uh, Asian. Because, um, and, and your talk was just amazing for me because it was like just the right time, you know, um, because this uh, virus is like a huge um, 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 identity crisis, you know, <laughs> like uh, suddenly everything stops and you kind of stop. And, um, and the, the follow up, the follow up question is you said uh, something about, um, stepping back and, and listening. And, and I find it really difficult because most of my life I was the one talking and getting the attention. And that was kind of who I was or who I am. I don't know. <laughs> and, and, And since I've, I've started to practice uh, yoga and the zazen and, and you, you catch yourself like, okay, don't say that. And, and, and slowly but surely you, you start to listen. But my question is, how do you still like stay yourself? You know, if you don't say anything and you just listen. So I feel like sometimes I'm a bit... Um, not there, you know? So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for that question. Um, it, it brings up a great point, which I think sometimes gets lost in the conversation because we see race as almost this thing that, that is part of us, but is also between us. It's in society. Um, uh, race is, I guess, a phenomenon. Let's, let's call it that, uh, that has, such a history of discrimination and um, violence and just difficulty in this country in particular. And as I say, you know, I'm talking about race from an American point of view, right? It's, it's different. You know, there are some differences in different cultures, but it's, um, it's hard not to react to race and, and approach it in some way that's extreme, right? Extreme denial, extreme um, anger, extreme outrage, right? Extreme, you know, chastising of the self, you know, there, there are all these things that feel um, very urgent and it is important to have those, those experiences. But I think also you bring up a great point because the way we approach or understand race or want to, you know, come at it really comes from our own personalities. It has to do very much with, you know, how we see ourselves, how we've always operated in the world, you know, even, even outside of that um, question of race. And so, I love what you are saying about uh, the awkwardness that can stem from feeling like you have to uh, approach this from a place of inauthenticity to yourself, that you essentially have to become someone else or like someone or something else in order to have this conversation. And, um, and that's, I think, a piece of looking inward that I think this practice uh, can especially help with, which is, you know, who do you think you are? not just you, I, I just mean in general, you know, who do we think we are and, and how, how does that, you know, how does that uh, 
change or affect how we interact with the world. And then, you know, and by extension with, with this question of race. So, um, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's important to stay yourself. Um, but I think it's important to ask, you know, what is that self? Is, is there even uh, an answer for that? I don't know. Maybe, uh, Tygen, <laughs> people who practice more than me, I don't know if there's an answer. So <laughs> it's kind of, <laughs> I'll good, continue practicing. <laughs> That's fine. It's a good question. <laughs> oh, so, uh, Paul, did, I saw your hand up. Go ahead. Uh, thank you very much. Um, I grew up in a biracial family, and, and in the 50s, I was given a book to read by Langston Hughes. I, I, he had a series of books, the simple books, and in there he states that, I remember reading as a young person, the Negro does not need to enter the burning house of white bourgeois, bourgeois morality. And it made a big impression on me, and I've <clears throat> held that thought all my life, actually. But do you feel that Buddhism is an alternative to white bourgeois morality? <laughs> Thank you so much for that question. Uh, I think it's a bit of both. I think it depends on the kind of, you know, the kind of sangha and community that you have. And I think in if, if your sangha is, you know, predominantly upper middle class and white, that there's going to be a little bourgeois whiteness. I can't remember what the exact uh, formulation was that that's going to be in there. Uh, it doesn't mean that it has to, or that it will, um, that that will be the overall experience. But I think this is definitely, uh, it can also be an antidote, right? It can be a, a form for interrogating those, uh, that kind of situation, um, that kind of place from which a, a lot of people operate. And then also, you know, that uh, he makes a great point. If he's not entering that burning house, you know, how many, um, you know, practitioners of color do you have in your sanghas? You know, what might that say about the kind of culture that has been, you know, likely unintentionally created, right? What, you know, are there a kind of exclusionary norms? And I think that, uh, again, don't have don't have an answer. I, I wish I, you know, could could help solve these problems. But that's you know just a perspective that I think is important to keep in mind. <clears throat> Such a rich topic. So many questions. Other comments, questions. Uh, responses. We have a little more time if anyone has something to add. Yes, Fushin. Thank you, Sarah. Especially among all of the riches you bring to us today, for the question about the relative value of identity and difference and the difficulty Particularly, I think, at least from my perspective, coming out of a what might be called a Western philosophical background, the, the over 
writing emphasis on identity. And I mean, there are some feminist thinkers now that have, you know, experimented with placing more primacy, giving more priority to difference and the the way that difference functions, not just as a separator, but as a connector. And it seems to me that that's a very promising way to <clears throat> continue to move for many of us. That, And I just wondered what, whether you could maybe reflect on that a little bit further, the importance of difference as a connecting tissue rather than simply as a, a conception of separation. Thank you. Thank you. That's, um, that is a really interesting and important point because often in these discussions, and I think that's kind of the, the tone that we've taken uh, that I think is good was, you know, how do we get rid of difference or how do we um, come to an understanding of sameness in a productive, you know, way that doesn't necessarily, you know, erase anyone's identity, but, but really try to come at this um, commonality and, uh, you know, one of the things I think about difference, you know, goes back to this question of the universal human race versus, you know, um, having an individual or raced identity. And the thing I hate is when people, you know, back that up with the, the I have a dream speech and say, well, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. said that, you know, he wants to have a world where his children are not judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And that is often... Um, the rationalization for colorblindness, uh, so to speak. But I think that, to me, the important word there is judged. He didn't say that he wanted um, his children or anyone else not to be recognized as black or, you know, f- for the for the color of their skin in the in the unique experience that that indicates, right? And I think what what it sounds like um, you're saying about difference. Uh, I think to me, it's it's a kind of distinction. You know, we have distinctiveness. We have um, special and different experiences um, of identity, of community. And I think these uh, conversations often center on the individual too. And it sounds like uh, with difference, there's also a little bit more emphasis on community in the kind of uh, approach that you're talking about. And I think recognizing that difference doesn't have to have a value judgment uh, accompany it. And that's one of the things that is almost impossible to conceive in our society where we're different, difference, whether it's racial, whether it's based on sexual identity or ethnic identity has always come um, with a value judgment of where uh, people who embody what we consider difference from the majority uh, fall, you know, in the hierarchy. And, if we take the judgment away from difference, we don't have to necessarily get rid of difference as a concept. And so I think, I think that's a great goal to work towards if I'm understanding your question correctly or the, the, or the comment, I'm not sure that I am, but that's just um, when I've thought about difference in terms of, you know, what is positive about it. That's, that's where, where I've come to. If I may just add to that, I think part of the problem of not recognizing differences in the people who say who say no to Black Lives Matter, all lives matter, but then we're not recognizing the real 
karma, the real cause and effect of 400 years of slavery and lynching. And, and uh, that has a consequence for all of us, even those of us who are white, that uh, not recognizing this uh, karmic legacy of our country. And so uh, we have to talk about difference. Just to go, uh, uh, one of our chants says, merging with sameness is still not enlightenment. We have to look at the differences and the particulars as a context for, yes, of course, there's a oneness and a commonality too, but uh, if we don't look at the difference, then, uh, terrible things can happen. And so that's the struggle we're in right now with uh, uh, white supremacist uh, government we've had. Anyway, uh, it's, an, it's a difficult issue, but it's important. Thank you. Other comments? We have time for one or two more comments or questions or responses. Uh, if anyone has somewhere else, it's been a very rich discussion, and I really appreciate your book, Sarah. I recommend it for those who haven't read it, and uh, and this discussion is powerful and uh, a lot to think about. But any other um, comments or res- responses? Oh yes, Kathy Bingham. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Tiger. Sarah, thank you very much for the talk. And I agree, this has been a powerful discussion, very helpful to me. Um, I was thinking about some of the things said earlier, like beginning with Eve's comment about how different cities, different places uh, deal with race differently. And I was thinking about this city, you know, Chicago is a very segregated city and, um, I was thinking when I first came to Chicago in the 70s, there was a sense if you went to a social event that you really got typed, you know, that people ask you questions to type you, to categorize you. And I, and I felt it strongly. Uh, it was very uncomfortable to me. Um, but thinking about how this city, I mean, there's the history of how this city developed and it's an important one to understand And so some of it is understanding how it developed to be so segregated. Um, But I think there's another issue here to understand how that segregation influences us now who live here in terms of what we're exposed to, the way we think, you know, that I think it, it probably shapes us in some ways, you know, and I wonder if we see all of the ways that it shapes us. Um, and so I, it's just a thought, I, any reaction, I appreciate. Thank you. Um, I lived in, in the Chicago, I won't say in the Chicago area because I lived in Evanston. And um, that's, it's Chicago adjacent, but it's still, it's still very different. It's a very privileged area. Um, you know, it's part of these um, northern suburbs that uh, can can really dissociate from from Chicago at large, uh, even though, you know, the north, uh, Andersonville, that's 
the closest neighborhood to to where I was. So I always felt myself very much a visitor um, in Chicago. I, I was there for four years, as I said. So I didn't really get the the full texture of experience. I think even that um, you know people have lived there much longer or your, or your whole lives have um, you know understanding of of you know Chicago society and culture and what that means, but. I did get the sense uh, that it is a place where people have to uh, maybe pigeonhole or categorize you in order to know where you fit in. And so what, what you said about that resonated with me. And, you know, I've had the experience in uh, of fitting in multiple places, but there was still a discomfort in that because I was always seen as a little bit other in in all of those in each of those spaces. Let's say I occupied whether it was with um, African American friends who had you know grown up on the South and West sides and who were very much part of that community. I was still an other there uh, in Evanston, you know, in Northwestern. I was you know not not from there. People who are not from Chicago, just across the board, are are a little bit other in Chicago. So. Um, you know, that was my experience. And I think studying the history for me was one way to start to understand, as you said, how that shapes the way the the city is now, you know, Cook County, the police, man, I, I can't, I can't even um, get into that. Mm-hmm. But the history is both so rich and, you know, full of so much racial violence, that, you know, being able to to know that and then kind of see the resonances of that, I think is, you know, one place to start. I'm I'm sure you already have, but, um, but yeah, these, these forces are ongoing, even if, uh, you know, some of the, the bigger or the overtly segregated practices are not. Well, thank you, Sarah. Thank you all for this discussion. Um, Maybe we'll do our closing chance now, and then we'll have announcements. So, Dave, uh, David, if you would put up the Bodhisattva vows. Uh, do you mean the uh, the uh, the chant, the, the Metta Sutta, the, the service? Uh, yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Very good. I will uh, share the screen, and if if you would uh, please make sure that you're muted, and um, for the Sunday service. We'll chant the repentance verse three times and then uh, then the metta sutta and then a dedication. So, all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow all my ancient twisted karma. From beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, born through body, speech, and mind, I now fully avow. Metta Sutta. This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has obtained peace. 
Let one be strenuous, upright, and sincere, without pride, easily contented and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise but not puffed up, and let one not desire great possessions even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. Even as a mother at the risk of her life watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around, without limit, So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world, standing or walking, sitting or lying down. During all one's waking hours, let one practice the way with gratitude, not holding to fixed views, endowed with insight, freed from sense appetites. One who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. May all awakened beings extend with true compassion their luminous mirror wisdom. With full awareness we have chanted the Metta Sutta. We dedicate this merit to our original ancestor in India, great teacher Shakyamuni Buddha, our first woman ancestor, great teacher Mahaprajapati, our first ancestor in China, great teacher Bodhidharma, our first ancestor in Japan, great teacher Eihei Dogen, our first ancestor in America, great teacher Shogaku Shunryu, the perfect wisdom Bodhisattva Manjushri, to the well-being of all those afflicted with ills and to peace pervading for all peoples of the world, Gratefully, we offer this virtue to all beings, all Buddhas throughout space and time, all honored ones, bodhisattvas, mahasattvas, wisdom beyond wisdom, Mahaprajna Paramita.